Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. If you're new to the show, I highly recommend you head back into the archives to the very first episode. That's where we cover some of the rules of the game and lay out the city of Triumph, which is where this campaign began. You'll also need the Player's Handbook and Marshall's Guide for Deadlands Classic, since that's the game we're building for. And since the classic versions have been out of print for about 20 years, unless you've got a really good used bookstore near you that carries role-playing game books, you'll want to head over to the Pinnacle Entertainment Group website at P-E-G-I-N nc.com and pick yourself up the pdf versions and no i don't get any sort of payment or commission or kickback for sending you there but i do get the satisfaction of knowing i've sent them some business in exchange for using their products on my show without feeling too guilty about it does it make sense Eh, it does to me anyway. So anyway, with the niceties out of the way, let's get into this week's build. I know last week's build wasn't as action-packed as most of the builds have been recently, but that was sort of by design. For those keeping score at home, we're down to five members of the board for the group to deal with, if you're still counting the banker. That means the clock's starting to tick closer towards the end of our campaign. Now, that being said, we've got a few things brewing that might push that ending back a bit longer than I'm thinking at the moment, but we'll need to see if what I'm thinking fits in with where we're going when we get there. But that's down the line. Let's get into this week's build. You know the drill, though. We can't build new until we've recapped what we covered last week. Last week's build started with our group getting off the train in Deadwood. It was obvious to them from the beginning that the entire town seemed to be aware they were coming, and that point was further driven home if they managed to catch one of the baker's men eyeballing them. Once they got their feet planted, they needed to decide what they were doing first. Regardless of whether they got a hotel room or went shopping, all roads eventually led to their meeting with Bronson Atwell, a.k.a. The Baker. However, before they got to that, they had a little meeting with Town Marshal Seth Bullock. It's obvious that little meeting was designed to be an information-gathering expedition for Bullock, and while he didn't specifically warn them off of killing Atwell, he made it plain that they better have all their ducks in a row if they did so, otherwise things might not go so well for them. With that meeting concluded, it was time for the main event. Entering Nuttle and Man's number 10 saloon, they finally got their eyes on Bronson Atwell, and he had a deal for them. Per a letter from The Undertaker that he presents to the group, they're forgiven for all their prior transgressions against the board, provided they walk away from the saloon, leave Deadwood, and stop going after board members. Otherwise, it's open season on the group. We discussed the three options the group had and noted that trying to kill Atwell right then and there would lead to the entire saloon being blown up by a sort of dead man switch Atwell had rigged up. While it is possible your group chose to walk away completely, we proceeded from the angle that the group decided to back off to take the time to make their decision, which is what Atwell had suggested to them in the first place. What I didn't make clear last week was that Atwell would give them 48 hours to respond. Otherwise, he'd assume they were coming after him, in which case the open season policy would begin. With the group having very few options to gather intel on Atwell, they were surprised with a note under their hotel room door. That note directed them to the Forrester Mine, where they met with the mine's owner, Big Jim Forrester. Big Jim gave them the location of Atwell's compound, about five miles north of Deadwood, and he points out it'll be a hard five miles ride due to the terrain and the fact that it's outside of the agreed-upon Deadwood footprint, meaning that the Sioux who live in the area might not take too kindly to white men on their land. He gives them the 411 on the basic layout, which is a smallish cabin with a medium-sized barn on either side. And he also notes that Atwell's flying machine is in one of the barns. 
He also warned them that Atwell likes to post snipers in the trees around the compound, as he didn't clear too many of them out when he built it. One final bit of knowledge that he passes on is that some of the men Atwell employs on the compound look like he dug them out of a grave or something. As they leave, he notes they're in no man's land, so if they get into trouble, they are on their own. We ended the episode with the group preparing to get some more recon on that property. Okay, so this week we need to begin with the layout of the Atwell compound since your group will certainly be wanting to get their recon in before they strike. Maybe not, but let's do it anyway. And if your group doesn't do recon, you've got what we've created to use for reference once they've made their way onto the property. First things first, they have to get to the property. I wasn't kidding in the creation when I noted the five mile ride is rough. There's no real good path carved out through the various foothills of the mountains to get up there. So they're having to move at a rate that's considerably slower than they're accustomed to. And you know, I wouldn't mention it if it wasn't coming into play. They will have an encounter with the Sioux. If I'm being historically accurate, these would be the Lakota Sioux, but the text doesn't typically get that specific. I, on the other hand, am a bit of an history nerd, so I feel like we should include that here out of respect for our Native American friends. A party of five will make themselves obvious about a mile and a half into the group's trip. However, it's apparent they're taking a peaceful, if cautious, approach to the group. If you need stats, you should definitely use the Sioux Shaman template from the Player's Guide for one, and the Coyote Brave template for the other four. Now, that's not a completely accurate template for the Sioux, in my opinion, but it's what we've got, so we're going to run with it. Besides, this encounter is just supposed to be conversation, so we shouldn't need to worry about combat, right? The Shaman will be the only one who speaks, and it's obvious he's considerably older than the four men accompanying him. His face is worn and weathered, but his deep blue eyes still have the energy and power of a man half his age. His white long hair is pulled back, secured with a leather strap, and he wears simple clothing, buckskin pants and an animal skin of some type that he's wrapped around his torso. He also carries a staff carved with dozens of intricate patterns. He identifies himself as Hawakan and states that he's the spiritual leader of the Sioux residing in this area. For the curious, Hawakan's English is near perfect, though he does have an accent that's difficult to place. It doesn't impact his English, though, so it's not really that big of a deal. Hawakan requests a few minutes of the group's time to have a conversation. He knows why the group is here, and he knows where they're headed. He also states that he and his men aren't here to stop them. On the contrary, he's come to this spot at this time because he wants to provide them with wisdom. He acknowledges that the compound you head for is filled with bad spirits, unresting dead, and profaned rituals from both our people and people whom we have not yet met. His suggestion to them is to enter at night due to the snipers needing light in the woods to better see their targets. Furthermore, he strongly suggests that the group not waste time on the kidnapped man. He will note that he is no longer the man you once knew. He admits to not being a fan of modern weaponry as it goes against what he believes and has been taught, but he also acknowledges that situations like this require solutions we may not necessarily agree with. He gestures to one of his men who produces a roll of paper. Unrolling it, Hawakin shows the group a map of the compound. It's rather crude in its drawing, but effective as it notes the spots that are favored by the snipers and even shows which spots which snipers will move to over time. Another plus is that it details how many snipers are present during the day and how many are there at night. Needless to say, there's about half as many at night. The cabin is noted, as are the barns, one of them has two words written on it in Lakota. Heyoka untehi. Any of your characters who speak Sioux know this, but if nobody knows, the shaman will define it. Opposite to nature, one who kills. He admits he doesn't know what that is. He just knows that that barn stinks of death. 
Other than the map, he's unable to provide them with any further useful information or blessings, and the latter is due to his beliefs in the old ways, which prohibits the use of modern weaponry. However, he will offer to commune with the spirits on their behalf, because as he puts it, they're everywhere, and you never know what they might have to say. With that, he thanks them for their time, then he and his men head off to the east, leaving the group to their recon. As a side note, I hope I got my Sioux pronunciations correct. If I didn't, I certainly apologize, but I was hoping to inject a bit of authenticity into the game. There was never any offense met. So, once the group has their map and their words of wisdom, maybe they'll come back later? <laughs> my group will probably do a daytime recon anyway, just because, so here we go. They'll notice smoke rising up through the trees as they get close to the compound. Nothing to worry about, it's the type of smoke you'd expect to see from a fireplace or from a word-burning stove. In their minds, probably coming from the cabin. That should allow them to orient themselves to figure out what's where. They're also going to need to make sneak checks with a target number of five. We're going with a lower number because they've got maps giving them details of where the snipers should be so they can work themselves out accordingly. They'll also need a spyglass or some other form of magnification to check out things at distance. To pick out the snipers they can see from this angle, it's a scrutinized check, target of 5 with magnification, 10 without. They can make out 6 snipers positioned equal distance from each other and exactly where the map said they'd be. To move around or closer to the buildings, another sneak check is required, same target number. Now, if anybody failed the first check, we're going to give them a pass, but the target number increases by one for each person who failed. Keep track of that moving forward because it will come into play. Repeat the previous checks until they found all 18 snipers out here. Again, they are exactly where the map said they'd be. Now, we should probably have the snipers make some sort of checks once there's been a couple of failed sneak rolls. So use the gunslinger template, make search checks. Their target will be an 8 since they're not 100% sure what they're looking for. No, do they know exactly where it is. Should they see a group member, they'll open fire, which will cause the other five snipers in their section to open fire as well. Run the initiative and roll with it. Obviously, gunfire will eventually draw the other 12 snipers in, and maybe a few guys from the cabin or from one of the barns. Look, I seriously doubt it's going to come to gunfire, so let's just proceed along like they're pulling this off without a hitch. Getting their glances at the cabin and barns is the same step as before. Sneak checks at whatever the current target number is due to failed rolls, then scrutinize checks, same as before. By the way, there's only about 30 yards of clearing from the trees to the cabin and the barns, so they're going to want to stick to the trees. There appear to be men in the cabin, though from distance it's hard to determine how many. The barn to the right appears normal. It's the one on the left, the one the shaman specifically named, that should be freaking the group out when they see it. There's bloody red symbols painted on the doors and drag marks that appear to be bloody moving away from the barn and the rest of the compound. They won't be able to figure out more without getting closer, and there's just enough clearing around the three buildings to put them out in the open if they try it during the day. That would make their sneak be a 14 if they choose to try it. The smart money would be to return to town and come back after dark. As it's midday at the latest at this point, they'll have a lot of time on their hands when they return to Deadwood. Let them do whatever they feel they need to do at this point, though I'd advise against doing anything stupid, and by stupid I mean anything illegal or immoral. At this point, there's a lot of eyes on them, and they don't need more attention than they already have. So, let's move ahead to nightfall and the group's return to the compound. It'll take them longer than it did earlier to make the five-mile ride, since it's dark and they don't want to risk being seen by having any sort of light going. However, they do eventually make it there, and they can do their sneak-scrutinize combo again. We'll give them an even bigger break on the sneak, so the target's a three. 
scrutinize will take a bit more, even with magnification, since there's no lights up in the trees. Target is 8 with magnification, 15 without. I know what you're saying. Without light, what good are the snipers? <laughs> Come now. You know I have something cooked up for this, right? So long as they make their sneak checks, they can get to the edge of the trees, which puts them about 30 yards from the cabin and about 35 from either barn. If they fail the sneak checks, we again have our snipers make their search checks. However, this time we're using the Veteran Walking Dead template from the Marshall's Guide. Target number is still 10, but this explains why the light isn't needed. Again, arm them with rifles as we've done in the past, and note that there are nine of them out as marked on the map. Going back to the edge of the trees, the group needs to make a decision. Cabin or barns. We'll describe all three so you've got what you need once your group makes its decision. The barn on the right has a set of huge barn doors on it, plus a smaller normal size door to enter. It's unlocked so the group can get right in, and there isn't anybody in here. In fact, there's nothing in here. This was supposed to be the barn with Atwell's flying machine, but there definitely ain't no flying machine in here. If they search long enough, they'll find a note on a table against the rear wall. Gentlemen, your meeting with the natives has caused me to understand that I might have overstayed my welcome. Obviously, you're welcome to whatever you can take out of the house, provided you can get past my men. However, I strongly suggest you stay out of the other barn. For your own safety, of course. We'll see each other again, I'm sure. Bronson Atwell. Now, some players might see the note as complete crap. Let me assure you that it's not. Atwell has left in his flying machine, and where he's gone will be something we'll get to in another build. However, we've got two other buildings to get to, so let's hit it. The front door to the cabin's been kicked in, and it looks like a slaughterhouse in here. All of the rooms in here are covered in blood and remains of what the group thinks are humans? <laughs> they can't be sure because there's not a whole lot left. And for the record, the blood's fresh. No need to make a roll on this. Your group should be good enough on stats by this point to figure that one out on their own. They can search for anything of value, but if they already know Atwell's gone, it's going to be pretty obvious he took everything of value. He did, however, leave a $100 bill on the kitchen counter. That's it. That leaves us with the barn to the left, and this is where it gets hairy. Hey, before we get to that, it occurs to me that during either of the group's trips to the compound, they might get themselves into a shooting match. If that happens, and if they get overwhelmed, let's give them a bit of support. The four Sioux who accompanied the shaman will return to help the group, though the group is never going to see them. Have them use arrows to pick off as many snipers as it takes to even the odds up enough for the group to finish them off and get away. I'm not going to get into specifics on that because I don't know how many snipers you'd need to take out to do that. Might be one, might be ten. Depends on how good your group is. However, the group should be able to figure out who's helping them if you describe the almost whistling sound of the arrows as they fly through the air. Okay, so let's back up and get to the slaughterhouse. The door stands wide open and it is lit up like Christmas in here. Now, if you've got a weak stomach, you might want to fast forward through this description and come up with one of your own. Don't worry, I'm not going to be offended. There are half-eaten human and deer carcasses all over the barn, and four walking dead are in here. They're armed with shotguns and pistols, but they aren't the ones responsible for all the damage you can see. It's the Wendigo they're sort of keeping watch over. The Wendigo template is in the Marshall's Guide, so familiarize yourself with that before we get into combat. Now, if Zebediah Thomas managed to get away from your group in Albuquerque, subtract two walking dead and put him in their place, stat him out just like we did in the last episode. The group will also have just enough time to see Jonathan O'Toole splayed out on a table towards the back of the barn. He's moaning and he's groaning, and it's pretty obvious the walking dead and Wendigo have been having their way with him. Get your initiative going and run the combat. Now, 
If you've got dynamite happy players in your group like I do, they might be tempted to use it. However, those who are a bit more level-headed will think to suggest that they not do that, specifically because of the Shaman. Because if they destroy Mother Earth like that, the Shaman will probably be rather pissed at them and they don't need that headache on top of everything else they've got going on. I'd also say that applies to lighting it on fire, but you can decide if you want to allow that or not. Once combat is complete, give each player a blue chip, a red chip, and three white chips for everything they've done to this point. They can then check on O'Toole. It's not pretty. His chest has been cut open and his rib cage cut loose to expose all of his organs. It does appear that a few of them have already been, well, let's just go in with saying they're not there. His lungs and heart still are, though it's pretty obvious he's about a half a step from death. And unless you've got someone who could perform a miracle, he's a goner. In fact, in the few moments they're looking at him, his breathing begins to slow and it's really obvious he's about to pass. However, he opens his eyes a bit, realizes it's the group, and manages to say, Chen Yi, Sacramento. He uses his dying breath to get those three words out. So Jonathan O'Toole is dead, and Bronson Atwell got away. The group needs to decide what they want to do next. They can build a pyre to burn all the bodies. Those are easy enough to regulate that they shouldn't catch the rest of the forest on fire. In fact, as they start to do so, the shaman will appear with his men to assist. He'll tell them that they can leave the structure, as his people can use the materials for themselves. Once it's done, he suggests they head back to town and make their next move. With that, he shakes their hands, which is a big feat, and the group should go ahead and be on their way. The return to town will go without incident and the group will probably just want to get some rest and head out in the morning. If they've got other ideas like talking to Bullock, let them do it. However, to address the question they'll probably have for him, Bullock has no idea where Atwell might have gone. When the next morning arrives, the group needs to decide where they're going next. Denver should be the obvious choice since they need to report to Mr. Norwood. However, they've also got the option to take the train west to Seattle and catch one heading south to Sacramento. We'll mull over these options and we'll work them out for our build session next week since we're at a good stopping point for today's build. But we're not finished with the show just yet. I mean, my group played last week, so you know we need to do a recap. So let's refresh our memories about what my group did during their previous session, then we'll get to last week's. We started our previous session with the group heading away from their meeting with Zebediah Thomas's daughter in Dodge City. They spent the night in town, then headed out the following morning along the Santa Fe Trail for Albuquerque. On the way, they had two encounters with Walking Dead and managed to defeat both groups with the creative use of dynamite. They got to town, checked into the Hotel Gato, then headed for the distilleria and met with Mr. Marquez. Once he explained what his issues were, the group decided to return the next day and trail the men collecting money from him and follow them to wherever they were taking it. The group succeeded in their tale, but rather than enter the house, they staked it out and saw a number of other Shannon Gang members enter it. Deciding to come back another day or night, they decided to head for the offices of the Albuquerque Daily News. Once there, they basically got the brush off, though the man they spoke with did tell them that a fellow named Toby covered the crime beat. Once outside the offices, they saw newspaper employees entering a restaurant across the street, and they headed in there to look for Toby. They found him, asked a lot of questions about the paper, the town, and the Shannon gang. Toby gave them the nugget that Mr. Shannon, known as Buster Shannon, likes to gamble at the wagon wheel, among other tidbits. 
The group decided at that point they'd go to the wagon wheel that night and headed back to their hotel. They spoke with Maria, the owner, and got her information about her ex, who the group realized was now a walking dead. And before they headed to the wagon wheel, Scott had the idea to hit up Mr. Marquez for information about other businesses the Shannon gang was getting money from in the hopes they'd be willing to pay the group a little something extra for taking care of their business. Marquez was offended and kicked Scott and Aniston out of the building, banning Scott for the duration. And that was where we left off our last session. Before we pick up with the recap, I have to note that Scott and Gabe were the only members of the group present for the session. Normally with a five-person group, I'd choose not to play if I had less than three, but Scott and Gabe decided they were game and said, let's give it a go. So with that in mind, I made some adjustments to my material as we went along, so what they encountered won't necessarily match up with what we originally created. We began with the group heading for the wagon wheel. This part of the night went exactly like we drew it up, so I'm not going to get into the details here. The one change was that Buster Shannon left a $100 bill on the table when he left instead of the 20 we wrote in. The boys decided to have a couple more drinks on Mr. Shannon before heading off to the address he provided. Plus, they needed to get back to their hotel to pick up their weapons before heading over. They decided to grab their air rifles, since they reasoned that if they got in a gunfight, the air rifles would make less noise than traditional rifles, which would probably buy them more time to get away if need be. They got to the house, found the safe, and got the contents we discussed in that build session. They also took the time to take stock of the house as a whole, noting where all the windows were, and especially noting there was only the one door. In their questioning of me about the house, they asked if any of the windows were open. I decided that since it was a cool evening, they were. Besides, Buster Shannon wasn't coming back, so who cares? So when the group heard men approaching, they went out the windows on the backside of the building and set up to shoot, if need be. Now, this was the first adjustment I made to the adventure. With only two group members, they only encountered Zebediah Thomas and one of his henchmen. They took a moment to confirm that Thomas had walked in and asked if they'd be able to get a free shot. Feeling generous, especially since there were only two of them, I agreed. And that went pretty much the way you'd think it would. They each hit on their shots and did a combined six levels of wounds to Thomas's head, which means Thomas's head turned into a busted watermelon and the henchman with him fell immediately. Now, with the fight over this quickly, the boys knew they had plenty of time to get things checked out. When they were searching the bodies, I gave Thomas an item we didn't give him in character creation, and that's a rosary-looking item with several profaned voodoo and shamanistic symbols on it with blood-red gems. Before they got too far into that, Scott decided to use his power to speak with Thomas's corpse. He was asked who made him, and he answered that he wasn't made. He was transformed. When asked about the symboled object, he stated it was his control over them. They asked about the body of Thomas's wife, and the reply was that it was used to fuel his experiments. When asked if there was anything left of the body, he replied the negative. Scott inquired about the wife's spirit, and Thomas replied, quote, don't know, don't care, end quote. Finally, they asked if there was something of his wife's left that they could give his daughter. This is where Thomas really showed his true colors. Quote, I don't have anything, don't care either. Little bitch can do whatever she wants, end quote. Scott tried to ask one more question about the experiments, but he failed the role, so no answers were provided. Thoroughly disgusted at this point, Scott moved on to the henchman. But I told him when he went to ask a question that he felt the body was totally empty. No soul, no spirit to ask a question of. And with the amount of usage of his powers this go around, I decided it was time to mess with him a little bit. So I had to make a spirit roll, and I made one for the voices in his head. I didn't tell him that at the time, but he failed the roll and gave me my chance. The failed roll meant that one of the voices was able to push through and tease him a bit, giggling and telling him 
He who holds the control as long as he lives, he controls. I repeated that several times with the voice continuing to giggle just to kind of creep him out a little bit. So Scott grabbed the item and attempted to use it, ordering the henchman to rise. I told him the body tried to get up, but it couldn't. He kept making rolls and trying to get it to rise, but he continued to fail. And for the record, Scott spent several of his white chips in an attempt to succeed. He finally tried to do it with overall and a white chip, and he failed again. Finally decided to bring one of the other characters in under my purview. It was Tyler's character, and he offered a piece of advice, which is that Scott would probably have to attune himself to the item before he could use it, and attunement probably meant some sort of blood ritual. So they carefully wrapped up the item and stored it away for later. Since there wasn't the long, drawn-out gun battle we'd anticipated, the police never got involved, so we basically skipped all of that. However, I still had a telegram on their bed when they returned to the hotel, which they noted was interesting, since they'd considered sending a telegram to Dodge City to inform their favorite newspaper editor that they had some stuff she wanted, but it had been too late to send one. Hmm. GM Fiat, maybe? Anyway, it was a message from Teresa suggesting they get out of town first thing in the morning and flat out telling them to get rid of the amulet, bracelet, whatever we're calling it. As they rode out of town the following morning, the group acted on a suggestion of Gabe's that even if there hadn't been a body to bury when Thomas had his wife killed, her family might have had a funeral anyway, so they'd go looking for a tombstone to pay their respects to. No dice. They headed for Dodge City, not only because they needed to get there to catch the train, but also so they could drop off the package of evidence for Thomas's daughter to use to stir up a whole lot of trouble for a whole lot of public officials. When they met her in the office, her face lit up when she saw all the evidence she had to work with. They also showed her the bracelet thingy and she went cold. She told him straight up it's the worst kind of voodoo juju and suggested they destroy it immediately as the gems on it contain the souls of the people the holder could control. The boys agreed and did so. They sadly reported everything Thomas had said about his wife and lamented the fact they didn't have anything of her mother's to give her. That's when Scott had an idea. He asked if he could borrow the locket she wore around her neck as she had said in the past it was her mother's. He then went outside and tried to use his powers. Scott gave me the 411 on what he was thinking and since he was trying to use his powers for a really good thing, I decided to go easy on him for the check he needed to be able to reach out. I let him make contact with the mother's spirit. And because Scott pulled off the role of the night, I pointed out her voice was way clearer than it should have been. In fact, it was clearer than voices he gets off of recently deceased bodies. He asked if she could tell him something he could pass on to her daughter, but to make sure she said something that only her daughter would know that she said is kind of the bona fides. Now this really put me on the spot, and I hemmed and I hawed my way through several things before I finally paused the game for a minute to come up with this. Leaving Papita was the best decision you ever made. Lying about it was even better. Cerberus is by my side, and we watch over you every day. When Scott reported back with that, of course, he made the daughter cry. Oh, and for the record, Cerberus was the dog. N need a reminder? In Greek mythology, Cerberus was the three-headed dog of Hades. Oh, and what does Cerberus mean in Greek? Spot. So Hades named his dog Spot, and this woman, several years before this event, used the Greek name so she could name her own dog Spot in her own unique way. All right, it's cheesy, but I had to run with it, especially when Scott about crapped himself when I dropped the name. His <laughs> eyes so got big. He about freaked out on me. It was beautiful and worth it. Totally worth it. The guys left the office and then they caught their train to Denver. 
Once there, the adventure proceeded exactly like we drew it up in the campaign build, with Norwood reporting O'Toole's disappearance and the telegram showing up. The only difference here is I didn't put the $25,000 offer out there. Norwood gave them five grand for expenses, and they got themselves to the train station. We ended the night with the group getting off the train in Deadwood. And that's where we'll pick up my game when we recap in two weeks. Next week, we'll see where our group of adventurers head off to now that their business in Deadwood has concluded. And before I get into my usual closing stuff, I wanted to let you know that Bad GM Productions is finally taking our show on the road. We'll be at Archon 45 in Collinsville, Illinois on September 30th through October 2nd. Now, we're not scheduled at present to be on any panels, but we will have a table there and we'll be around to talk about the podcasts and anything else you might want to talk about. If you're interested in more info about the con, their website, I'm going to spell it out for you. It's A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L dot org. As always, all Deadlands classic materials we reference on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted property of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in buying these books or checking out any of the other fine products they produce, check out their website at peginc.com. And while you're checking things out, check out Role Playing History, which is our podcast covering the history of role playing games. We cover games, game systems, game creators. I've even done episodes on the relationship between gaming and mental health. And I've done shows on dice, so we cover a whole lot of ground. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build-along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. Twitter, catch us at Bad GMP. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Our email is badgmproductions at gmail.com. Or you can catch us online. The website, as I've said, is badgmproductions.net. Bad GM Productions is all one word as a website would be. Next week, we either head back to Denver or straight for Sacramento. Either way, this uh, this should be interesting. But that's next week, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.